Hey, it's Lucas Walker again, and in this episode of Bricks and Clicks, I'm joining Colin and Johnny as they talk about data, where it comes from, how it's used, and some of the nuances of data within the grocery industry. So without further ado, that sound is the dirty nail, and that means it's time to get started with Bricks and Clicks. Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of Bricks and Clicks. I'm Colin. And I'm Johnny. And we are two of the founders of Omnium CPG. We're joined today by Lucas from the Pit Stop Podcast, and we're going to continue our conversation about the CPG space and all things related to trade marketing. Awesome, Colin. Thanks so much. It's, uh, it's nice not to have to do the intros for once. <laughs> well, happy to help. So last time we talked a little bit about trademarking, who Omnium CPG is and, and really who you work with. And I think today we're going to talk a little bit about data sources and how that really impacts the marketing towards the purchase environment. So I think it was Johnny were saying in the last episode, 104 weeks of data. You guys are the mathematicians. So if my math is right, my Gregorian calendar math, that's about two years to the day worth of data. You got it. Very good, Lucas. Clearly you were paying attention in, in Calculus 1 or whatever your last math class was. I never took Calc 1. I did take advanced stats though. So I'm not a total greenhorn or whatever phrase you, you want to call me. I just know enough to know I have no clue what I'm talking about. And it can be addicting just looking at all these data sources, trying to make use of it. What are the main data sources you look at when making these multi-million dollar decisions for CPG brands? Yeah, so the data that we focus on is transactional data. You can imagine when you go to your little grocery store to buy some products, you put it through the scanner, all that data gets recorded, those purchases get recorded into large databases that syndicated data providers such as Nielsen or IRI, they collect all of that. And then they sell it to the manufacturers. So it's that data, that's the data that we use, because recorded under that sale is the item, the flavor, the price, was it on promotion? Was there a feature ad? What was happening in the category? Was competition on promotion? What other items were selling? All the sort of characteristics happening in the store at that point of the sale is recorded. And so we use that once it's all aggregated up to build our models and help with our recommendations. And there's two main data suppliers for US data, Nielsen and IRI. And so they're the ones that are doing the collecting. They're grabbing all the data, they're cleaning it, they're making it structured. And then they're making it really easy for the people they sell it to, to use it. So it's really clean, which is different than a lot of other industries where you get all this messy data that you've got to clean yourself. So what makes data messy that would have to be clean? Because I know for a lot of brands and that were really grown on e-commerce, part of the power of it is just having so much data that you own. For instance, your email marketing, when you set up your OmniSend, you can go back and look at all your campaigns to see what works. You can see your segmentation. So for so many e-commerce marketers that have those own channels, what does it look like to even just buy data and knowing what separates good data from bad data? With a lot of online data, or even if you're smaller and you're selling to a few different places, you might get pieces of data from one source and you get pieces of data like from your online store and you get some data from maybe another marketplace that you sell through. Maybe you get some data from a small chain locally and then you want to look at it holistically. You want to combine these together. 
And that's where the messiness comes in. If you have to merge three different data sets and try and match up your items and try and match up the different measures, you're just going to end up with a lot of blanks and things that don't mesh well. Let's say you're selling, or let's just keep using Cliff Bar because they're a client of yours. And you sell a 10 pack of Cliff Bars on your website. You sell individual units on Amazon. And then you did a deal with, say, TJX to sell at discount retail. Do you mean merging those data sources to see things like how fast the unit sold, what your average price was, you know, what else is being promoted around then? What kind of data are you really looking at? Yeah, a lot of the analysis that we're doing is to understand how those different conditions affect sales. So how much do I sell when I'm not on promotion? How much do I sell at different price points? And then how is it impacted by things like having ads or online? When I ran that banner ad, how did that affect my sales? So you would take the flyer data and say, you can pinpoint the spikes in retail sales that said, we were in the flyer this week, and then you have that really big spike, and then you look at it and say, you know what, we also ran a website promo this weekend, and that impacted our offline sales as well. Exactly. And getting all that data together is really hard. So that the online data landscape, I know it's improving, but it's a little more difficult right now to really look at everything you ran. Now, Nielsen and IRI, these big companies that deal mostly in brick and mortar, but they're getting more into digital, They've got it all merged together so that in the same data set, you can see what you did in Publix, whether there was an ad there, and also what you did in Albertson Safeway, Northern California. And you can draw national conclusions from this to say, I know that running ads gives me an extra 20% bump set. And you get that finding from looking at events that were run at a whole bunch of different retailers. As I say, and that's why it's important too for the data that you do have, that it's separated um, and sort of segmented based on retailer by week. So you can really tease out and see that spike that you're mentioning, Lucas. Like we ran a feature ad, we saw our volume spike during this week, and it happened at Publix. A lot of times when we're working with manufacturers, when they're sort of getting into data for the first time, they don't go down to that level and they'll be buying data that's sort of at a total grocery level. So let's look at all grocery sales for this week or for this four week period or for this 12 week period. And they miss a lot of that nuance and those details of like, hey, we ran an ad at Publix during this week and the next week we ran an ad at Kroger and then one at Target. And so you can then tease that all out versus if you just looked at that all combined, it would be blended out and you would miss those really key important details about, hey, when I changed my price, I saw an increase in sales at Safeway. That seems like it would be a pretty good thing to know that instead of paying to promote both in terms of the promotional and advertising cost, and the lost margin, you actually did better when you increased your prices at one store and were on sale elsewhere. Absolutely. You need to sort of look at all those different pieces and see how they're connected. And really try and tease out what's causing, is there any correlation and what's some causes between volume sales and, and, and different things happening in the purchase environment. How often do you find the data is really surprising like that versus just going on promo all the time, everywhere, how often do you find those little nuances of say, you know, this formulation does really well, this one small chain, but this other formulation does better nationwide. And I guess what I'm just asking for more so is really just an example of it happening of when you were surprised by the data and the story that it told once you dug in. Yeah, we can actually, let's keep running with this Publix example. For those of you who might not be aware of all the different U.S. retailers or who don't live in Florida, Publix is a pretty Florida-specific retailer. 
and they merchandise very differently than say Albert and Safeway NorCal on the West Coast. So to try and answer your question, Lucas, there are national findings that you can get. So you might be able to say, when I do this level of discount at pretty much every retailer, I get an average of this amount of increased sales. And that's a really helpful finding to be able to design national go-to-market strategies. But then at any specific retailer, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm using Publix as an example because they are really good at running BOGOs, buy one, get one free. And if you ran a buy one, get one free at Publix versus a buy one, get one free at Albertson Safeway, Northern California, you're going to see very, very different results. So we can understand it nationally well enough to design a go-to-market strategy generally, but you still need to then take that strategy and turn it into an individual account plan for every retailer. We know how we're going to go to market. We know what we're going to generally try and achieve, but then you've got to also tune it at each retailer. And that's called account planning. And that's really the most important thing we do with any client in the course of a year is work on that general strategy and then tune it at the account level to really make it hum. And so that brings up another common discussion when we're working with clients is around assortment and sort of prioritizing your assortment in terms of what is your top item in this channel or this grocery store versus another. And there's a lot of different ideas and beliefs about this. Like there's more mainstream flavors are going to do well in say a more traditional grocery store versus sort of these niche flavors are going to perform stronger in a more natural focused retailer. But what we found and sort of the general understanding and learning is that the same flavor is going to be your top flavor across all the different channels. So cheese pizza is still going to do really, really well in grocery and natural and Walmart and Target and online. It's probably going to be your number one item across all those. Now you may sell a lot more cheese pizzas at say a Walmart or a Target, but it's still going to be your top item across all your channels. And it just sort of scales up depending on the retailer and the consumer. That's also a really common belief that people have that we work with. But it's, it's a great point. It's a discussion we have a lot with our clients and in manufacturing in general about how do you prioritize innovation versus your current items that really brought you where you are today. And it's that balancing act. And our belief, we usually default on, hey, let's not give up our core items. Like that is the most important thing. Those are our best items. We need to have those on shelf at every store, no matter what. Once you get those in, then you can start going down to the more innovative flavors to see how they do. Do new and innovative flavors usually work or, and maybe this will be the teaser as we wrap it up for the next episode about packaging, or is it something that a lot of manufacturers and brands do that, that they love, but maybe customers aren't as enthusiastic about it as, as they are? Yeah, I would happy to take this one. I'll leave it as pretty open so we can talk about it in a future episode. So make sure you're subscribed. If you get fired up, don't get so fired up. You forget to hit that subscribe button. And I'll, I'll just tease it with a question. And my question is going to be, what happens to all the products that were launched that we just don't see anymore? And how many of those are there? How many unsuccessful products have been launched? It's important to think about that because we've got a bit of confirmation bias going on. We walk the grocery store, we're looking at the successful items. We don't really see the unsuccessful ones that often. It's like that picture of the plane with the bullet holes. And then finally they said, yeah, but these are the ones that survived. Where did the planes get shot that didn't survive? I think that that is the perfect teaser to loop in this season on cereal with a C. What happened to all those cereals that didn't make it? <laughs>